0: This is Ethan Siegel, and welcome to the inaugural Starts With a Bang podcast. Some 13.8 billion years ago, the Big Bang occurred, giving rise to a hot, dense, expanding, plasma-filled state full of matter, antimatter, and radiation. By expanding and cooling, A number of interesting things happened, enabling our universe as we know it to exist today, including the creation of more matter than antimatter, of atomic nuclei, of neutral atoms, of the first stars, galaxies, and eventually clusters and future generations of stars, some of which contained rocky planets and the ingredients for life. 13.8 billion years later, here we are, reconstructing exactly what happened at every step along that way. There are as many different aspects of this universe to explore as we can think up, but to start off, last month, scientists at NASA made a tremendous announcement the announcement that they had discovered liquid water on Mars, not just in the Martian past, but today at the present day, liquid water flows on the Martian surface. This was a tremendous surprise because you wouldn't expect there to be liquid water where you don't have enough pressure. You'll remember that water can exist in three states, solid, liquid, and gas. But in order to exist in the liquid phase, it needs to have a certain amount of pressure. If the pressure is too low, such as in the vacuum of space, you can only have water in the solid, ice phase, or in the gas, water vapor phase. This is why when astronauts expel their urine into space, what happens to that liquid? Well, first it boils, turning into the vapor phase, and then it freezes, creating a bunch of ice-snow crystals, which is what astronaut urine looks like. On Mars, the atmospheric pressure is only 1 140th, less than 1% of what it is here on Earth, insufficiently large to have liquid water. So the discovery of liquid water should come as a bit of a surprise. There are a large number of features that indicate the presence of ancient water on Mars including dried up riverbeds, including some with oxbow bends, a global ocean, Martian spherules or blueberries on the surface, many many layers, some of which have been eroded away of sedimentary rock, as well as frozen lakes, ice caps, and the discovery of subsurface ice. So it isn't a surprise to learn that Mars once had an active magnetic field that shielded it from the solar wind, to learn its atmosphere was thicker in the past, and to learn that its surface at one point was covered in liquid water. But even at the bottom of the deepest pits on the Martian surface, there isn't enough atmospheric pressure to create liquid water today. So how would it exist? How did we discover it? and what do we look for to expect the physics to actually work out? There's actually a combination of a few different features that we need to put together. One is, if we look at the edge of craters, many different craters, including some imaged by the Opportunity Rover, others by the Mars Odyssey mission, and still others by High-rise or Mars Surveyor, Mars Global Surveyor, we see that on many canyon walls, there are what we call recurring slope lineae which are gullies and valleys that don't exist just from ancient times but that we see extending even today so how do these come to be these recurring slope lineae they appear to be valleys or gullies in the martian surface today but we see them that we see them grow we see them extend further down and what's more is when we look at them we say these could be avalanches or this could be flowing water taking them downstream. How do we tell the difference? Well one difference is we look at seasonality. The other difference is we look at deposits. We can look at the molecular composition of these gullies both before and after they were extended further down and what we see is that these are not avalanches. What we see due to perchloric salt deposits is that in fact yes we had flowing water that then evaporated or boiled away but was a time part of this briny briny liquid that flowed farther down the mountain and by making topographic maps of Mars we've been able to confirm that this is in fact the case that things are flowing downwards now the salt tells us something else very interesting that we might not have realized just like when you sprinkle salt on your ice-filled driveway in the winter to melt the ice, you can do that on Mars as well, except in the opposite direction, where you couldn't have water in its liquid phase that was pure water, if you have it be salty enough, briny enough, if you have it filled with these other molecules, not only does the melting point change and the boiling point change, but also the pressure at which you can have liquid water changes as well. So all of these features combined is what allows us and enables us to have liquid water flowing on the Martian surface today under the right conditions. So now that we know we have these dried up riverbeds, these ancient oceans, and these current recurring slope lineae, these flowing water channels that exist for reasonably long amounts of time, we're talking hours, days before the water goes away, on Mars today leads us to all sorts of incredible possibilities, including ancient and possibly even extant today, Martian life. So what would you like to know about Mars? Well, we've decided to invite one of our users, one of our Patreon supporters, on to ask us exactly what you might like to know. We're pleased to welcome Machek to the show. Maciek is one of our most highest level supporters on our Patreon campaign, and I am pleased to welcome him to the show. Good evening, Machek, How are you?
1: Hello, Ethan. Pleased to be here.
0: Yeah, so today we've been talking about the recent discovery of water on Mars, and I'm really pleased to welcome you and to take whatever questions you have about this topic. I know you're fascinated by it. Uh, Can you give us a little bit of an introduction to who you are and what you'd like to know about water on Mars? Yeah,
1: sure. So my name is Maciek. I'm from Poland, and I'm 32 years old. Um, and since I was a very little kid, I, I've been always interested in physics and a few years ago I accidentally I think found your blog and since since that time I've been a very devoted fan reading almost all the articles, all the all the information that you posted on that on that blog. And uh, with this new discovery, I mean, I'm very excited about being able to ask you all those questions about what
0: could be. The biggest breakthrough or biggest discovery
1: of this century, meaning water on Mars, because it might mean
0: life on Mars, right? And I think that's that's one of the biggest things that you hit right away, is that we think in terms of at least Earth, where there is water, there is life. And this is true regardless of your energy source. This includes hydrothermal vents at the bottom of the ocean where there is no sunlight. This includes subsurface Antarctic Ocean. Um, We have life down there. Pretty much everywhere we look, if there's liquid water, here on Earth at least, there's life. And it's been rare enough on other places to have liquid water flowing on the surface that this, the very first planet that we find it on, not just subsurface underneath a thick crust of ice, but flowing on the actual surface itself, I think it's too tantalizing of a possibility to pass up. But that said, I think it's important to remember that both the conditions on Mars today and the conditions of the water that exist right now are vastly different from what we see on our own planet.
1: Yeah, exactly. So from what I understand, the, the, how, we, how we see this water is completely different from how we see it here on Earth. But, well, there's a chance that some some kind of life could have adapted to these conditions, correct?
0: I would think so. You know, the biggest differences between the water on Mars and most of the water on Earth is the water that we know exists in the liquid state on Mars is much saltier and is subject to a much lower pressure environment than anywhere else on Earth. Now, even at the top of the highest mountains, the pressure on Earth is nowhere near as low as it is on the Martian surface. But in terms of saltiness, we do have some hypersaline, naturally occurring sources of water here on Earth, like the Dead Sea in Israel, which is, you know, around 25 to 30 percent saline. And although on Mars the salts are perchlorate salts, um, which is slightly different from the natural ones we find on Earth, Even though we call it the Dead Sea here on Earth, it's not completely dead. We have bacteria, we have fungi, we have protists, we have pretty much everything except large plants and animals that actually lives in the Dead Sea. So I think it's not unreasonable to say, you know what, we could have that same type of life. It might be niche, it might be specially adapted, but if evolution works the same way it does on Earth, as it, as it does on Mars, if life took hold there, there's no reason to think you don't have hardy organisms that have adapted to life in those hypersaline conditions over there.
1: Yeah. So now my question would be, I mean, this is probably the question that everybody wants to ask you. And the question would be, how should we go about actually checking if life is there? I mean, there's a threat of, us contaminating the environment, right?
0: And I think that's that's the tremendous question. You know, most people don't remember, but back in the 1970s, and this is before my time as well, I'm only a few years older than you, Maciek, and um, uh, we launched the Viking lander onto the surface of Mars, and it was supposed to examine the environment in which it landed and do three separate tests for life. And the scientists said, if any one of these tests came back positive, we're gonna say there's life on Mars. Well, two of the tests failed, but one of them came back successful. At least, it came back successful on the very first attempt. Two subsequent attempts where they they heated it up and they looked for biosignatures, they came back negative. So what could that mean? Well, on the one hand, it could mean we found life on the surface of Mars and we destroyed it. And that was our one chance. And we, we found it and we killed it and we found the signatures from it. The other possibility is that that life stowed away it was Earth life and we brought it to Mars and we did our initial test and the first test came back positive because we obliterated the earth life and saw the biomolecules as the signature and then the subsequent tests we did all we had were the actual things on Mars which weren't life. So this is a possibility. We could have already contaminated Mars with earth life by having whatever things we had stow away aboard land on mars and now we have earth life on mars one of the more interesting things that we could use to discriminate is if we can look down on a on a molecular level on a dna rna level if we could sequence that there we know that everything on earth that's alive today has a universal common ancestor and this doesn't necessarily mean that earth life never originated in multiple different ways. It just means that one particular way in which it originated won out. And that's not difficult to imagine. If you have billions of years and one type of organism is more dominant over all the other types, it's going to wipe the others out. This is what we see in evolution and natural selection all the time. So I think if we look at something on Mars and we say, ooh, This Martian life doesn't have the same universal common ancestor as everything on Earth. It doesn't share 50% of its DNA or RNA with the things that we know exist on Earth. It would be easy to identify unique Martian life. What we don't want to do, though, is bring Earth life there and say, oh, we found life on Mars. It's ours. And we have contaminated and outcompeted everything that was already there. We don't want to contaminate an already inhabited planet before we know. So how would we go about checking that out? Well, the easiest way to do it would be to send a human. Because things that are hard for robots to do are easy for humans to do. You bring a human in a decontaminated suit and say, Hey, Grab some water, grab a microscope, grab a scanning tunneling electron microscope. Realistically, you can use technology that's 50 or 60 years old and identify any Martian life if it's there. Now this is tougher for robots to do and it's a lot cheaper to send robots than it is to send humans and it's a lot safer to send robots than it is to send humans. but I think it's our fear of contamination, our inability to properly fully decontaminate any equipment that we would send up there, um, that's really preventing us from looking for unique, indigenous to Mars life there now. In fact, all the things we're telling our rovers on the surface, like curiosity and opportunity, is you stay away, you stay away from this area that might have these recurring slope lineae with the perchlorate salts that could contain life, because if you show up there, you could bring earth life there, and then we'll never know because you've contaminated it.
1: Do you think in the like near future we will be able to somehow convince the, the powers that be uh, that it's actually worth sending humans to Mars? I mean. Do you think it's like reasonable to think it will happen in the next few years or do you think we'll have to wait for it or <clears throat> like 20 or 30 years? Because from what you're saying, we have the technology but there's apparently no will to go there. Okay, so maybe you can answer
0: this. Yeah, I think I can take that on. You know, when you say will will doesn't mean just for everyone listening will doesn't mean there aren't people willing to go will doesn't mean there aren't people willing to work on this to send people there what will means is are we as a people of the world of of whatever government you're a part of are we willing to invest all of this money and take all of this risk to say we're going to put humans on mars and this can't be something that takes as history has shown us 30 years to make happen. We need we need a plan where we're gonna have committed funding over a period of about a decade. And to realistically get humans to Mars to do these tests, that's going to take on the order of about a hundred billion dollars. It's gonna take on the order of a hundred billion dollars spent over the span of ten years. And Can we do that? Can we do that just on a purely scientific level because we want to know the answer to these questions, because we want to make the discoveries and we're willing to take whatever technological benefits come out of learning how to do this and investing in this out of it, that we're willing to take those benefits even though we don't know what they are? I would like to see that answer be yes. I don't know that in our political climate today, in the economic climate we have today, that the answer is going to be yes. But I'm optimistic that by time the decade is out, that people's imaginations are fired enough, that that we're curious enough, and that this is something that we just need to know as a species, that I'm optimistic that we can band together and make this happen. I would love to see an international effort between all the different space agencies China Japan Russia the European Space Agency and NASA I would love to see everyone band together and say this is going to be an international effort to send humans to Mars and we're going to figure this out
1: Yes I'd love to see that as well so let's hope it will happen soon I um,
0: I think I'm going to hope for that as well so <laughs> yeah, we are we have to do it we are running a little short on time but I do know that you have a few questions that really extend beyond Mars uh, far into the cosmos that you wanted to ask a few questions about and I wanted to definitely provide you with an opportunity to do so.
1: Alright, so I'm glad to hear that because there's one, one thing I always wanted to know and I don't think it was actually mentioned in any on your, of your posts because it's not actually an answer to a, to a question, it's more like your thoughts on the future developments in, in physics in general. Because what I wanted to know is when do you expect we'll have the next big breakthrough in in physics? And by big breakthrough, I mean, when do you think we'll learn something significant about dark matter, dark energy? Maybe when, when do you think we'll find some new particles beyond the standard model or maybe learn...
0: What caused the inflation? I mean the biggest questions in in physics. Okay. What do you think we can expect that? That's that's a huge question. And so you're asking me to speculate and because you asked, I'll do it. So we're asking, okay we have the standard model of elementary particles. We have the quarks, we have the leptons, we have the bosons, right? All of these have been anticipated since the 1960s and 70s. And with the discovery of the Higgs a few years ago, we found them all. Now, we've gotten some surprises over that time as well. We've discovered that the majority of mass in the universe is not any of these standard model particles, but is some type of dark matter. And that... That's a bit of a surprise. We discovered only in the late 1990s that the universe's expansion is not slowing down because the gravitation from all the matter in the universe is working to slow it down, but rather it's speeding up. The universe is accelerating due to some unknown form of dark energy. We know there's a matter-antimatter asymmetry in the universe. We have a universe that has more matter than antimatter in it, and we do not have a good explanation for it. We also have a universe that started not with the Big Bang, but with an inflationary state before it. And so these are all big open questions. So what do we expect the next advance to come from? Well. People who are working at the LHC are extremely optimistic that the LHC will uncover something new, and I'm not. I think it's their job to be optimistic, because if all they find is the Higgs and Standard Model Particles, then they don't have a very good argument for saying, let's build another bigger one, or one we can study things at even greater precision, because the standard model works too well at these energies. But I do think there's a very low energy thing that offers a hint. There are actually two. One is, we have this argument, we see this thing called CP violation in particles. We see it in the weak nuclear interactions, where if you have a particle that decays, imagine, imagine, take your right hand, and imagine your right hand is a particle. You've got your thumb pointing up, and your fingers curl around your thumb. So what you see is this particle spins in the direction of your fingers, which is counterclockwise for your right hand, and it's going to decay in the direction of your thumb. So let's say it's going to decay upwards. Now, if you had an antiparticle for this, it's possible that the antiparticle, if you replace this particle with an antiparticle, that maybe it wouldn't curl the way your right hand curls. Maybe it wouldn't spin counterclockwise. Maybe it wouldn't decay upwards. That's what we call charge conjugation, or C-symmetry. If everything is the same, if it it does curl that way, it does spin that way, and it does decay along the direction of your thumb, then C is conserved. But if not, C is violated. You can also imagine there's a symmetry called P-symmetry, or parity symmetry. This is reflecting it in the mirror. So if in addition to your right hand being held up, you held your left hand up with your thumb up, you would see like, oh right, the thumbs point in the same direction, but instead of my right hand, the fingers curling counterclockwise, with my left hand, the fingers curl clockwise. That's P-symmetry. So if you reflected this in the mirror, you would have P-symmetry. And if you did two things, if you said, I'm going to replace particles with antiparticles and reflect them in the mirror, then I can have both C and P together. Now you would expect that if you replaced particles with antiparticles and you reflected them in the mirror, that you would say, oh yeah, that looks just like I expect it to. But sometimes your particles don't do the same things as your antiparticles in a mirror do. And that's called CP violation. Now, in the weak nuclear interactions for radioactive decay, CP is violated. For the strong nuclear interactions, the interactions mediated by the gluons, we don't see CP violated. And that's troublesome because in the standard model, you can write down a term for CP violation and you don't expect it to be small for any particular reason. So we think there's got to be a symmetry making it small. That's what we call a naturalness argument. We don't expect the universe to just be this way. And yet we see it, and it appears to be. So what's going on? We're not sure. It's possible that this would lead to the development of a new particle. This is where the particle called an axion comes from, and this is one of the leading dark matter candidates. So there's an experiment called ADMX that's looking for the axion in the range where it could be all of the dark matter, they're sort of a dark horse candidate, but if they find the axion, that I think is an experiment that's going on today that could be very promising. The other place to look, and I don't think a lot of people are talking about this, is you know the Nobel Prize was just awarded for neutrinos, discovering that they oscillate from one type to another and that they have mass. For me personally, I recognize this is not predicted by the standard model. In the standard model, neutrinos should be completely massless. And not only do they have mass, but this is a weird little coincidence. If you look at what their mass is, it's exactly the right value that if you were to assign what is the mass equivalent of the dark energy that causes the universe to accelerate in its expansion, that energy of the mass of the neutrinos matches up to the energy density that we need for dark energy and so I think it's possible and I'm not the only one who thinks this so I can't take credit for this but I think it's possible that there's a big strong connection there and the more we learn about the neutrino sector about these three types of bizarre neutrinos and we learn what causes their mass I think that's the greatest prospect we have for understanding dark energy and potentially if there are heavy left handed neutrinos, Dirac neutrinos, that cause this, um, you know, neutrinos are handed, and we have only in our universe left handed neutrinos and right handed antineutrinos. So if there are heavy right handed neutrinos or left handed antineutrinos, they could potentially be the dark matter. So I would say our best bet, our best hope, is to look in the neutrino sector. And there are people looking there but that's not the leading theory that people are looking on. So that's what I would like to see happen. All right, well, thank you very much, Maciek. I appreciate you being on our show. Thanks for tuning in to Starts With a Bang's inaugural podcast. We'll be back every month with a brand new one. And you can support us on Patreon at Starts With a Bang. Check out our blog on Medium or on Forbes. And I'd love to thank our current Patreons. I'd like to thank Bakhtiar, Peter Dillon, Robert Hansen, Thomas Sola, Denier, Igor Mitrofanov, Pedro Texera, Kathy Reese, Brian Terry, Danny Chamberlain, Dennis Arnaud, Alexander Marius, Gaijin, Bob Wilson, Adam Rabung, Andrew Douglas, Weller Tractor Savage, Rachel Merritt, Nathan Hanna, Thomas All, Glenn McDavid, Nick McCann, Benjamin Turner, David De- Tascione, Daniel Aitken, Radek Nesbeda, Patrick Dennis, Chris Hilly, Richard White, Joe Latone, DGE, John Seal, Fletch, Philip Radulovic, Nathan Heston, Braxton Thomason, Karen Garrison, and Zarko Opatrick. Thanks everyone for your support, and I'll see you back here next month.